Hello there, and welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. Today, we end our month-long series celebrating women's history in the mountains with stories of the historic and contemporary leadership of women in our communities. Central Appalachia is well known for rich legacies of labor organizing. From the West Virginia Mine Wars in the 1920s, to Bloody Harlan in the 30s, to the Brookside Strike in the early 1970s, stories are told about the miners who went on strike But women played important roles in every labor movement our region has seen, one that isn't always lifted up in our histories. And in the past month, Central Appalachia has seen a wave of renewed labor organizing, spearheaded in large part by mountain women. In all of these historical moments, we see women organizing not only for their own self-interests, but for the health of their communities as a whole. So on this episode, we bring you voices of women on strike today, and voices of women on strike in the past from our archives. We'll hear from West Virginia teachers who walked out earlier this month demanding a pay raise and affordable health care for all public employees. And we'll hear from teachers in Letcher County, Kentucky, who protested Governor Bevin's proposed pension reform bill just last week. And finally, from the Apple Shop archives, we bring you audio of women in Brookside, Kentucky, who supported miners on strike there in Harlan County in 1973. In late February, West Virginia teachers went on strike to demand a pay raise and better health benefits for all public employees in the state. This historic nine-day strike sparked national conversations about the modern-day labor movement. While the teachers' strike wasn't only led by women, it's worth noting that three-quarters of teachers nationwide are women. I spoke with a few teachers about their personal reasons for going on strike, the significance of this action, and what it means in a national context. So my name is Emily Haas. I live in Greenberg County. I work at Greenberg East High School. I teach grades um, 9 through 11. And I've been a teacher for three years, but I've done lots of nonprofit work prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. Could you describe sort of what it's felt like to be in the Capitol? Um, you know, when there's 10, 12,000 teachers there and you're all there for the very same reason, it is probably the most empowering um, moment that you will ever have. And it changes your complete outlook on what education is supposed to really look like and feel like. Um, You know, I I could have sat back and allowed my peers um, 
to have this fight without me. And I made a choice not to do that, and I'll tell you why. I have two girls, and they were not going to watch their mom sit back and let other people do the work for her. And I was going to show them what it was like to stand up for something that you believe in and to not back down. And I would not be able to do that if I didn't have a husband who believed in education because that's what, that's what got him where he is today, is an education. And, um, you know, a sibling who um, is also a union rep at his, his place of work as well. So it kind of runs through the blood, I guess. Um, <laughs> You know, when you're surrounded by people who believe in you and coworkers that you're with every single day who love what they do, the decision to stand up and fight for what is right is really easy. You know, you don't have to second guess it because we're all in this together, really. And uh, if, I mean, if we're going to make it different, we have to dig our heels in and make a commitment and stick together. And, then, and I really feel strongly about that, and I feel like um, <clears throat> that's what's happened. Okay. Um, my name is Danielle Kenny. I am a middle school teacher in Berkeley County, West Virginia. I teach at Martinsburg South Middle School. Um, I teach 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. I have a Bachelor's of Arts in Secondary Education, Family and Consumer Science, 5 through adult. I've heard, I've heard some rumors that, that folks think that this, this could grow from beyond West Virginia. Um, and I wonder what, what you think it means for West Virginia to be leading such a historic strike, um, given... The way, that, the way that the state is seen in sort of national politics and media, but also just um, the current sort of political moment in our country. What do you think? Does it, what is the significance of this being? Uh, I think people are finally starting to look at West Virginia and realize these people are hardworking people and they're tired of their government taking advantage of them. And if they can do it with a little bit of resources that they have, and we should be able to do it, too. And I'm sorry I'm emotional about that, but it is the truth. It is the truth. Yeah, you don't need to apologize. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sad, but I feel very blessed that I work with an amazing group of educators that I am supported an amazing group of person service personnel and we have an amazing DOH and state troopers and you know DHHR and the, they are behind us and we're their voice and sometimes you have to take the chance to stand up for something because if you stand for nothing you will fall for everything and West Virginians are tired of falling for false promises, false bowls. It's time for us to take our state back. We put those people down there and we can take them out of there. And they need to do their jobs 
and for them to say we're not doing our job, it's a little hard when they're not doing their part. I miss teaching. I think about my students. I teach in a school in a school that's low socioeconomic. To give you an idea, every student because we have such a high rate of low income students, my school in particular, they have free lunch and free breakfast every day, and I mean free. Yeah, I take stuff out of my own pocket to buy for them. I keep a drawer in my classroom that when they say, Miss Kenny, I'm hungry, or Miss Kenny, can I have something? And I'd have it for them. It's not because I'm wealthy, but it's because that no student should have to go hungry. And our state has abused their citizens for so long, and they have enabled them to not be able to help themselves, that we have decided that it's time for us to help everybody. We need to fix this. I understand that PEIA has been on its downfall for years, and I do understand that it cannot be fixed overnight. I get that. But they're making false promises, and they're saying, well, we'll give you this, but we're not going to give you that, that. No. There needs to be a fix, and they need to have people that this affects, not the finance board, not the politicians. They need to have people that are going to sit and can have a rational, educational conversation in order to find ways. We have suggested ways to bring revenue in. When you have a governor that's telling you, we don't have any money, but I'm going to put $20 million into tourism. Well, that tourism is going to bring business in and then the tax revenue. Da, 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 da. It's, it's all a smoke screen right now. It's one of those things. When I physically see it in writing with my own eyes, with his signature at the bottom, then and only then will I believe him. And at this point, West Virginians do not have faith in their governor, and West Virginians do not have faith in their politicians because we've been played for so long. In late March, Letcher County teachers lined the Route 15 bypass in Whitesburg, Kentucky, holding signs and leading chants in protest of Governor Bevin's proposed pension reform bill. I spoke with several of them. My name is Ella Sparks, and I've taught school in Letcher County and also worked in county and state retirement systems. And so why are people out here today? What, what is the, the cause of this little action? We're trying to get what we were promised when we started teaching. We didn't make a whole lot, but we were told that we would be giving, given good insurance and good benefits. And now it seems like all of it is about to go down the drain. So we're protesting. Do you protest often? No, first time. Is it? <laughs> well, how's it feel? Fine. <laughs> Better if I didn't have this giant microphone in your face, probably. <laughs> um, well, what do you think it's important for people to know about this issue? 
I think they should know that they took our money so that we would get what we were promised and now they aren't living up to the contract. It's supposed to be an involatable contract which cannot be changed but they're trying to change it. And so what would be the best outcome if, if exactly what you all want to happen happens, what would that look like? To keep their promise. Okay. Is there anything else you think people should know? So you know anything, Jean? Nothing. I doubt that. <laughs> I doubt that's true. <laughs> well, I'm not a teacher. I'm a state retired. I'm retired from the state, but I'm not a teacher. I work for the state. So why did you decide to come out today? Why did I come out? Because of them, they called me and I came out. But they did. They promised us this. They said it would be there. And now, you know, I'm our age. We depend on that money, you know, and we depend on the insurance and all, and they're, they're not living up to what they said. And what's that? She's covered basically under the same insurance okay. as the teachers. Okay. Not living up to that either, you know. And so is this bill that the teachers are out for the same bill that would impact your retirement and all? Yes. Okay. Well, what, what do you think is important for people to know about um, why this issue? Well, the money was there. I went to a seminar before I retired, and they said they had been taking the money for other reasons. Well, it was just to be for retirement only, and they didn't live up to it. They were taking the money off for other things. And, you know, if they promise you... You work, I worked 33 years, and if they promise you that you'll have retirement and you'll have insurance, health insurance, it should be there. Because they, I couldn't get a job now, <laughs> you know. Uh, my name's Melissa Porter. I teach at West Whitesburg Preschool here in Letcher County, and I came out to support all of their teachers who deserve a pension. And so what do people need to know about the pension issue, about what led y'all to be out here? We're all here trying to make sure that we can pave the way for our new teachers to have a pension, just like our old teachers. My dad taught for 33 years and retired, and we want to save all that retirement for our older people who have retired and gone on, and we want to make some new teachers come in. We're afraid we're going to have Bevan run off all of our new teachers because nobody's going to go into education if we're not going to have a pension. And what would be the best possible outcome of this whole action? What are you all hoping for? We're hoping that uh, our bill is voted down and that we can keep our pensions and that we can keep running the way we've been running. My name's Sheila Obrook. I was a classified employee for 20 years. I finished at Fleming Neon Middle School. That's where I retired from. Okay. And, and so um, what is it that led everybody to get out here in the first place? The injustice of it all. You work and you work and you pay in and you pay in with this promise and now they're taking the promise away. And you said you're out here not, not just for yourself but for younger teachers who want to retire. Can you say more about that? I'm here but not just for me but for the younger teachers and if this continues we won't have the new younger teachers even want to go into this profession. Teachers are, are horribly underpaid. Classified employees are horribly underpaid, but only because we had this promise. 
I could have made a whole lot more money working in the private sector than what I did did at, at retirement. But the promise was that I would be taken care of later on. And if young teachers don't have that promise, they're not going to apply. They're not even going to attempt to teach. And you can't blame them. What do you think the best outcome of all this would be? Ask us to the bargaining table. We want, we want to be part of the solution. We didn't cause it. It's not, our, it's not our fault. We've done our part. But at least talk to us. That's it. My name is Regina Brown. I'm the Letcher County Teachers Organization President and a KEA board member. And today we're out here just to let our community know what a crisis we're in in the state of Kentucky right now with the proposal of the change to our pension system and the lack of funding in our budget for all of state programs, not just education, but for all the programs across the state. And so for people who aren't up on all the news, what, what do people need to know about the changes that are being proposed and, and why that's um, so such a crisis, like you said? A couple of things that are being proposed. First off, in the budget bill that was introduced, House Bill 200, the governor's plan cut 72 programs throughout the state of Kentucky, such as funding for our Friskies, which in this area where we're so economically deprived, those are very needy for our schools and our children. Um, in addition to the 72 programs, one major issue for all teachers that are retired or soon to retire is that there's no funding in the next two years for our health insurance for retirees. And, and when the House received that budget, they amended it to fund the first year for single plan only. And then the second year was left up to the teacher's retirement system to fund, which according to our governor, we're 56% unfunded or funded. We're not 100%. And so if we take further monies out of it, I don't know how we could, could be solvent or stand firm. But it's a shame. I mean, I've had teachers that are in their 90s come to me torn up and in tears wanting to know how they're going to pay their health insurance. And it's really not an effect in 65 and older, but it's those that are under 65 that have retired. And a lot of people don't realize teachers do not pay into Social Security. The governor has a pension bill that he wanted passed. It was dropped in the form of Senate Bill 1. And in that bill, it would move all new hires into a 401k type system with no, no attempt or way to draw Social Security or pay into Social Security. So this would be their only retirement. And a lot of people don't realize a defined contribution like a 401 was only ever meant to be a supplement to another retirement. So in essence, if that's the only retirement that you have, it would deplete and you would draw all of it out in your elder years when you're unable to work and have no Social Security to fall back on. And so that's one major issue with this. And then the other one is we were made a promise when we were hired 
We signed a contract on the dotted line and it said when you retire, you will have a defined benefit pension system and we're gonna provide these for you. You're gonna be able to cash your sick leave in and the governor considers that hoarding, but a lot of us don't like missing and being out of our classroom. It's important for us. Just last week, I came to Letcher Elementary School in the morning at about 6.30 and a teacher was there who had taken one of her sick days preparing her lessons for her sub that day and her mother was on her way to the hospital. Teachers are dedicated and they don't miss unless they absolutely have to miss. Like all professions, like all regular jobs, we have people that don't do the same as others. But all we ask is that you give us what we need to work with your kids and that's all it's about. We have not had funding for education since CARA and CARA passed back in 1989 and 1990 and there was a big influx of money that made Kentucky more level with the rest of the states in the nation. And then over time, there's been an unfair equity in the counties in the, in the eastern regions and the western regions that are in these coal counties. We're actually only about $50 above what we started out with in 1989 and 90 per pupil in our county. And that's ridiculous. Our county needs to build schools and we can't. One way that we do that is to raise taxes. This, this community's broke. We can't afford to raise taxes on our community, but our governor and our legislators can do what's right and they can do true tax reform that taxes the things that doesn't affect any of us and generates new revenue. Every racehorse that's sold in Kentucky, billion dollar industry, not one dime of sales tax is given back to this state for that. Not one dime. Luxury taxes, how many of y'all are chauffeured around? There's no taxes on chauffeuring for limousines. I bet we didn't ride a limousine to work this morning and I don't think anybody in our county did. That's a tax that does not exist, that could be fair and not burden the back of those that are already working. And that's all we're asking. In the 1970s, miners at the Brookside Mine and Prep Plant in Harlan County, Kentucky, went on strike against Duke Power Company. As was common in strikes of that time and earlier, the conflict got violent. Barbara Koppel produced a well-known documentary called Harlan County, USA, about the labor struggles of that time. But as usual, the role of women in this historic strike were largely ignored. Mountain Community Television, an affiliate of Broadside TV, recorded Brookside women talking about the strike and how women were organizing to support their family and community members on the picket line. This program is produced by Broadside TV for Cable Channel 12 in Norton and Wise, Virginia. Well, in the 30s now, we had the, 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 the women didn't have the chance to pick it, although they, they had a march. And uh, it was so rough that the women had to stay in and keep their children in. That's Minnie Lunsford. And the, uh, on the... The back side of my house, the, uh, the kitchen porch, I'll call it, we could go out on the kitchen porch and see a machine gun. And then we'd go through the house and on the front porch and see a, a machine gun. And it was on the hill uh, over the camp. So without the machine guns, why well, they had high-powered rifles. And they'd get out and go up and down the road, cruise along very slow. And uh, not too far from where we're at now, there's a young boy. 
got killed. His daddy was organizer, and they trying to kill, tried to kill him, and he got away some way, and they just meant to kill all of the family, or whoever it hit. And it, it was a critical time back then, and the, we didn't have no union, or hadn't had none to back us, to back the miners or to feed them or anything at that time. But. Uh, I'm thinking it, it was it was awful bad. It was five men got killed in one one bunch. Uh, Everett's and they had a a bad battle at Everett's, and uh, I live below Everett's, what they call Verda, Kentucky. And it was bad then. They kicked and they shot at and they pushed the men and kicked them and beat them and killed them and everything and. I hate to say very much, but it's coming slowly back to that time now, in the, in the 74. It's a, it's a creeping right along to the now, like it was in the 30s. They begin to shoot <coughs> up houses, shoot at men on the picket line. They push and they shove and they have the, they have the, State police is in on them, and uh, it, it's it's very it's very bad right now. But uh, I hope it don't get as uh, hope they don't have uh, leave bloody Harlem. We called it bloody Harlem then. Now I hope there won't be bloodshed. But if they don't get something straightened straightened up, I'm afraid it's going to come to that. It might. Be, it might take it to to get something better, but I hate to say it. And uh, we're living we're living in in the, what I call a critical time right now. That's about all I want. Well, they'd, uh, they'd uh, make some signs and they'd march around the camp, you know, and they'd holler at the scabs, you know, the, what we called them, the scabs. Well, they, did, uh, they didn't have no, uh, well, they had state polices then, but they didn't send them in then like they are now. But uh, we had the, uh, they called them, they nicknamed them uh, Tin Horns. And uh, they came in, and they was a credit. Back then, they, everybody was scared and didn't want them in, but they was a credit to the and safety to the people. Then, uh, what the uh, the state police is doing now? State police is knocking, dragging, dragging women and uh, across the road and putting them in the cars and taking them to jail. And uh, they're backing up uh, boys, young boys, uh, at their car, putting a stick across across their neck like they's gonna just break their neck, push them up against the car, you know, and put that stick or billy or whatever you call it. They're cruel, just real cruel, worse than they was in the 30s. Ten horns didn't do that. It's national, uh, you know, the 
these uh, soldier boys that came in, they, they, they treated people good. What they do, the state police, they say they're not strike-breaking, and yet they say they're just keeping the roads open. Betty Eldridge. But still, they line up on both sides of this road, and they have those big sticks, one against the other, you know, and they won't let the men even get over there to talk. You know, you're there to talk to the people that's trying to break the strike, to try to get them not to go to work, you know. And here they line up, and if the men even offers to get even near the road where the scabs are going through, why, the police just load them up and take them on to jail. Uh, they're nothing but strike breakers. That's just all you can make them when they line up on the road, you know, and just escort them in. I mean, they have, you can't even speak to them. If you say anything, then you're, you're breaking the law, and they just take you on to jail. But, uh, and then they don't want to call them strike breakers. They say they're just keeping the roads open. When actually we never did have no trouble until the police come. And as soon as the police get there and, and line up on that road with them sticks, then's when we have all the trouble. We hadn't had no trouble till they come to Brookside, had we? we Not had really to. trouble. No. Until the state police come down there. And uh, in fact, they weren't even trying to work until the state police come that last time and, and escorted them through. I mean, they just, they just don't go, that's all. And when the state police come to take them in, they're all there ready to go to work. Does the men consider that the women a lot of reinforcement to them? Uh, yes, I think they did. In fact, uh, the men was sitting down there on a the picket line, a limit of three to each entrance. And they had, I'd say they had 80 men, 80 scabs going to work at that time, and six men there the picket, and that's when the women went down there, when we had our march. We were just sick and tired of that. There's no point in sitting down there and let them go to work. So when we had our march and seen all those men working, we decided we'd just put a stop to it because there was no point in the men sitting down there and somebody else up on the hill working. Well, you're never going to get a contract like that. As long as the company can work, why should they sign a contract? because you only get from them what's forced out of them most of the time. Now, some companies are good, and you don't have to force things on them, and some of them, just what they get, what you make them give you is what you get, and that's the way East Over is. Well, there's one thing about high splint. Uh, even if they cross the picket line, uh, they go in and then come back out. They've not been a producing no coal Gussie Mills. Uh, since they brought them out up there. They go up every morning just for trouble. They just cross the they picket cross line. They cross the picket line like uh, this Monday when they went in up there. They had all these guns set up over across the river. I don't guess you know the location of high speed and how it's set up, but there's a highway and then there's a bridge that crosses the river. And on this other side of the river is all company stuff. And they had even had sandbags. They did it on Sunday night. They had all fixed up so the men could get behind these sandbags and they had all their watchdogs up there and they had all these rifles and machine guns and stuff and when the men went to pick it on Monday morning here they are over here and then when the scabs come to go to work they've got all these guns lined on them the men all they can do you know is just back off or get killed and that's, that's the way they work they do theirs all underhanded it's not out in the open like the other day now there was a uh, uh, right up in a paper. It showed a picture of a man presenting a check to one of these clubs here in Harlan, some worthy cause, no doubt. But anyhow, he was the secretary and treasurer of Eastover Mining Company. 
And when I seen his picture there, I recognized him as the same man that tried to spit tobacco juice on me sitting down on the store porch one day. So that that's what we've got to deal with. You know, they, they're real civic-minded. And yet, when they're out in the dark somewhere, you know, they don't really care what they do. Well, now we're getting real scared at home because uh, them, them thugs is threatened to come right to people's house yeah. and run over them and beat them up right in their own house. And they are mean enough to do it. I know, not before last, there was a car cruised around these lanes about four times with the lights off. And last night, my husband sat up all night to watch the house. You know, it's awful when your family can't lay down and go to sleep <clears throat> in safety because you're afraid somebody's going to kill you. When you've not really done anything to anybody, you're just just on a picket line trying to yeah. to get what's right, what you feel like is right for well, yourself and your family. That's all uh, they'd beat me up first just because they've seen me on the picket line, but I'm looking for it. Uh, yeah. I never went to sleep till 2 o'clock this morning. They was cars cruising in and out, up and down, just like, <coughs> just like I said about the 30s. Uh, they'd come to your house. They say, uh, they didn't want nobody to visit you. They didn't want none of your people coming in. They didn't want to. And uh, they'd dynamite porches or cruise along and throw or sticks of dynamite on top of the houses. Well, these National Guards, they called them the Tin Horns. Just, they didn't want them, and they thought they was going to do everything against them. But they, they wasn't. They was a credit to these uh, state polices, or strike breakers, we call them. And uh, the National Guards, they stood in their, they t uh, they told what they was coming in for, and they done that. They didn't whip, nor they didn't curse. They didn't accuse anybody of anything, and they didn't want them to go to work. But uh, they they didn't work until they got the contract. But it's uh, it seems to me that a few of the things. Is, a lot worse now than it was then, outside of so many uh, being killed. The gun thugs has done already been down there in our camp because uh, they shot Tommy Ferguson's car the back last I hit sitting right at his house and shot in his bedroom too. Yeah, I know. So they started on the hill and uh, Larry Loveday and his daddy was sitting and they see them seen them coming on the hill till they could identify who they was. They backed back up and then went around the bottom. They'd probably come up and give us some of it. They hadn't well, uh, uh, down here by the bridge, you come across the bridge, there's a big house down there. And that's where Preacher Music lived. He was a preacher and he was an organist. Well, you see, uh, that's uh, to make it sound like it is coming back to the 30s. They cruised around over here three carloads of the gun thugs, the company men. And they went up, way up the head of the holler and cruised right down slow and had their high-powered rifles and they shot all, all in the side of that house and they killed that boy and they shot his mother in the arm. They met, well, you see, that's what they're doing this week. That's what they've commenced this week. And it's just the same thing in the 30s 
Only they okay, have. We're not starving today. They're not starving, and they did starve then. I've seen children, a little girl and a boy. Probably they had chickens or something to feed, and they went out to another house, and it took them both to carry a little bucket of scraps, table scraps, and they had a piece of cornbread about like that laying up on the bucket. And they sat down to rest, and they broke that in two, sit there and eat that. Well, uh, probably they didn't have anything to cook at home. And uh, the one week, my people all lived in Tennessee, and they didn't know, and I wouldn't write and tell them, explain. But uh, anyhow, one time my sister brought me some hickory cane corn, white corn. We all, most of us, loves canned can hominy. And I made a big kettle of hominy, and we lived on that three days for breakfast any time we wanted to get hungry. That's how it was. But now they're more they're more fortunate to get have something deep. But the rest of it is the thirties right now. I like too when you take anything to court. Seem like it don't make a bit of difference. When some of these union people have something done against them, they go to try to get a warrant. Well, they can't even get a warrant for somebody. But the company. They come up just every day or two with warrants for somebody. If you speak or move, they get a warrant for you. And Mr. Yarbrough said right uh, before the TV and in the paper that he was going to have the law obeyed. They take this same law that was made to help people, you know, and they're killing us with it. They really are. They're killing us with the law. When, when actually what we're doing is not really wrong, it's, it's, but technically they say we're breaking the law. Well, then the scabs don't have to obey the law. Well, they the don't law. seem to have any law for them. This this law is all one-sided as far as I'm concerned. Now, I believe in law and order. I was half, and I never, I was never, never heard a court case even, been in uh, a courtroom until uh, all this trouble started. Didn't know what the jailhouse looked like, but we're getting used to it. In fact, we <laughs> may pack our clothes and just move down there. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it, it, anything that, uh, that's this wrong. I'm going to stand up for it until they do lock me up. And I said that when we started, and I still feel the same old way. And boy, they lock us up every chance they get, too. Have they taken you to jail? I see one, two. Just counts a minute. <laughs> I don't know just how many times I have been down there. Four. Mm -hmm. Several. I've been in court numbers of times, but I've been in jail, I believe, about twice. They took me off of the picket line once, and then they put me in jail for breaking that restraining order. I don't know if I've been in there again or not, but Lord, I don't know how many bonds I'm under right now. I own half the property in this county. <laughs> how long did they keep you in jail? Oh, just overnight. Let's see. One day, I believe we just stayed all day nearly, and then we stayed overnight once. But we usually get out, you know, on bond. But uh, the fact is that we're there for nothing is the thing of it. Like one time, they loaded us all in cars and took us to jail because we laid down across the road. We didn't offer them no resistance in no way. And they just dragged us across the road and drove us in them police cars. And one of them just beat my knee to a pup, slamming the door on it when he put me in the car. And uh, just such things as that, it's it, it just no call for it, that's all. It, it don't make no sense to me.
Well, we did shut down Norman's store, too, the company store. Yeah, yeah, we closed the store. We hadn't been there, I guess, a week when we closed the store That's down, right. was we? But anyhow, that it kills them, you know, as long as they can work every day and run the company store and do business as usual. We never get a contract. There's just no way to get it unless you stop them from work. And apparently it's against the law to stop them from work because they've got the right to work. So, you just have to break the laws. That's all I know. But I do believe, now, like, uh, they've got an indictment against me now. I saw them arrest two boys on the picket line, and they put them in jail. That was the morning they arrested me for laying down in the road. But these two young fellows, they charged them with uh, hurling missiles at moving vehicles. That's throwing rocks at cars. But anyhow, when they come up for trial, I was looking at the boys when they picked them up, and they hadn't thrown no rocks, and I knew it because all I had to do was sit in the back of that police cruiser and look out at the crowd, you know. And the two that they got, I knew, was innocent. But anyhow, they come up for trial, and I went to the trial, and it was scheduled for 10 o'clock one morning, but anyhow, they put it off until 1 o'clock, so we all was out in town, just killing time. And I went into the drugstore, and there was three of the state policemen sitting in a booth in the drugstore. And I just couldn't believe that they was going to go down there and swear against those boys, because I knew they hadn't done nothing. So I said to one of them, I knew the state policemen, know a lot of them. I didn't know any of them when we started picketing down there, but I learned a lot of them, and we always talked to them, you know. So I said to one of them, I said, Riley, I said, you're not going to swear against those boys today, are you? He said, I reckon I am. And I said, well, you know they're innocent. I said, if anybody swears they throw rocks, they'll be telling a lie. He said, I don't want to discuss that case. I said, all right, we won't discuss it. But I said, I've always had a lot of respect for the state police, but if you all do this, I'm going to lose what respect I've got for you. And that's all that was said. Well, we go back to the courtroom at 1 o'clock. And the judge, that's Judge Hill, he comes out into that courtroom just like a big mad bull. He calls me ever big mouth, interfering woman, sticking her nose in things that she that's no business of hers. And I know he said the word big mouth four or five times. He accused me and convicted me, and he wanted to sentence me. He thought I'd jump up and yell and prove him right, you mm -hmm. know. He wanted to sentence me in the worst way, right there in that courtroom, before, well, you're innocent until you're proved guilty. What I said to Riley, why, I'd shout it all over the world. But anyhow, he recommended to Officer Riley then that he go before the grand jury and indict me which he did. Judge Hill pushed him into that. And in the meantime, I get a subpoena from the company. They want me for a witness for them, for some reason or other. And when they get this indictment against me, the sheriff comes up here. He has the subpoena and the indictment, the subpoena to go for, as a witness for the company, and this indictment before the grand jury for arrest. He's supposed to take me to jail and lock me up. But anyhow, he served the subpoena on me, and he told me to come down the next morning and post bond, you know, on the arrest thing for this indictment. So when I get down there the next morning, he said to me, he said, I've got all kinds of phone calls wanting to know why you've not been arrested and why I'm not doing my job and all this. So he takes me up to the circuit court clerk's office to post bond. And he said to her when he took me in, he said, well, says, here she is. Says, I finally done my job. said, maybe your phone calls will stop. And why in the world 
that that would be of any interest to anybody to get me arrested at that particular time is beyond me. Unless it had something to do, unless the company thought they was going to scare me to death, and I'd go over there and, and tell them a lot of stuff that they think I know. Uh, they asked me such questions like, uh, was the union paying me any money for my picketing? And stuff like that, you know. Uh, which is ridiculous. There's not enough money in Harlan County that would pay me for picketing. It, it's a principle. Uh, a union, it, it, it's from the inside of you. It's a principle. It's not money. Uh, none of us women ain't had no pay for going We've on We've had no pay, right. but they just can't seem to understand that, that people can't feel strong enough about anything. If they'll stand up there without your loading their pockets with money. That, I just couldn't believe it, the questions that they asked me. It, it's, well, as I said, there wouldn't be enough money to pay me for the things I went through down there on that picket line. Them scabs, they call you everything. I've been called, oh, unbelievable names down there. They'll spit at you. They'll run at you with cars. In fact, we stood in front of cars that would get so far back from us and speed up, thinking that they would scare us, that we'd move out of the road. And we stood there and thinking that they'd run over us. I thought to myself one day, one was coming down through there with a scab in it. And I thought, now, just go ahead and run over me. Maybe somebody will come in here and investigate this. Then that's how strong I felt about it. Just go ahead and kill me, and, and maybe somebody will open their eyes then, because we felt so helpless. It seemed like the, everything was against us and nothing for us. Uh, and that's the way it's been all the way. When, when us women went up to uh, High Glen, when we first went up there to protest, why, you couldn't ask them to honor the picket line for Basil Collins of getting a gun laying right in your face, and us only asking him to honor the picket line. And uh, a lot, uh, another man jerked a gun on us up there, on us women, and uh, we've not been back to picket no more. Many was up there with us. That was way back now when they, the That's, women yeah, went up there and picketed yeah. for a day or two. We this was a long time back. Of course, they done on, honored the picket night, of course. They went on to work, so the, they just quit that. But anyhow, this time, now they were successful in keeping them from working for a while. Of course, the women didn't go now. The men are picketing high spent. The women are not up there. But uh, the things at Brookside, like uh, before the strike started, they had signs posted all over their property, no firearms, or firearms prohibited, you know, on company property. And when we went down there and started picketing, every car that I come in contact with had pistols laying right on the seat with them. And the cars that we stopped, one of them, that first day we was there, he jumped out of that car and run, and he's stuffing this gun, you know, down in his shirt as he's going, and he runs into the company office. I know to get rid of that gun, because he comes back out in a little bit. He don't want to get caught with that. Like he's scared to death of us women, when actually what he's trying to do is get rid of that gun. And every one of them was armed. And the people that they hired to break that strike down there was little young boys, just growed up, you know, that really didn't know what they was doing, actually. Or else it was somebody that was uh, real stupid. Some of them we talked to didn't have enough sense to get in out of the ring. You know, it's pathetic. The people that they got to try to break that strike. People that they, once the strike was broke, why, they wouldn't let them work for them a week. That's it. They used them just like they use the rest of the people. They just use them to, to their own ends, and then when they're, they're done with them, they kick them out. And it's people that's unemployable, a lot of them, you know, that just can't get a job. Maybe this is their first job. 
And uh, actually, they wouldn't get no coal out. He paid them for ages down there just to come up there to the office and stand around just to try to get trouble. They'd weigh these little pieces of paper. They'd pay them, you know, just to come up there. They didn't try it. God saw they didn't even try to go into the mine. they just come up and stood around the office two or three hours in the morning trying to get the union men to do something to them, you know, to cause trouble. They'd weigh them slips around, make ugly signs and stuff like that. Uh, it's really something. It's unbelievable unless you're there and see it. And it don't seem like there's there's nobody can do anything about it. Well, you, Dale, said right down on the witness chair they had a whole whole crew of gun thugs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they've got that. them. They've got yeah. them, and they don't hide them. And it don't seem to be a thing we can do about them. That's what hurts. And like, too, when Judge Hill, he made this accusation against me in the courtroom. When he's all done and everything, he tells these two boys, you know, he says, we's going to dismiss your case. Just like he's doing them a favor, you know, not pushing them. But except for this big mouth friend of yours. And he talked to them in such a way that they thought that somebody had really caused them, you know, to be still in trouble because he told them he wouldn't dismiss their case, but they could come back in September. They wouldn't have to bring no witnesses or nothing. He had to do that in order to get this indictment against me. But anyhow, after he got all finished, I went around to try to explain to him just what I had said to the state policeman. And he brushed me off just like I was a fly. He says, you can tell it to the grand jury. He wouldn't even talk to me. That's the saddest part of all. When you can't even defend yourself, which is our right, you know, or it's supposed to be. I forgot what rights are, really, if we've got any. <laughs> me, But too. that's what it's supposed <laughs> to be. We, we get no justice nowhere. Don't uh, seem to be any. Well, there's a car hit a girl up to High Splint. We went one day way back, and that was the first and the last. There's a car hit her and drug her so many feet. And uh, she'd, uh, she got off the line and, and went to get a warrant, and they wouldn't even issue her a warrant for this uh, company thug. And, and we can't get no warrants, no matter what they do to us. We, they won't issue yeah, warrants. Yeah, car drug her plumb across the bridge. And, and then uh, she couldn't get a warrant, and then she went before the grand jury to try to get an indictment. Couldn't even get an indictment. When we go down there for something, they'll say, we don't want to get involved with labor trouble. Just don't want to be involved, and yet the company can go get all the warrants they want. And they just plan on wearing us out down there in that courthouse. And we plan on wearing them out, yeah, too. Yeah, we plan on staying right there with them. So, we ain't about to quit, I don't think. Very fine. Well, a lot of people give us a lot of praise, <laughs> and a lot of them give us the devil. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've heard some things said that, <laughs> well, I couldn't repeat them, really. But anyhow, but there's a lot of people that, that uh, they'll say, stay with them, you know, and, and stuff like that, which really makes you feel proud. And then there's a lot of them that looks down their nose at you and, and think you're just out there to show off and want people to see you and stuff like that. But actually, we've had a lot of support from the people in this county. And I would say the older people more so, you know, than the younger people coming up. Because the old folks, they know what it's like. A lot of the young people have never had hard times like some of these old timers. They know what it is. Uh, 
Oh yeah, about the the one from New York where she wrote that we were we were just bored. You know, in fact, I think I've got the article in the house now. Uh, we're just bored housewives, you know, uh, looking for excitement. And uh, there's no nobody would go down there for excitement. I mean, when you pick it, that's every day's business. Get like days I got up at four o'clock in the morning, and some days I'd stay down there till five o'clock that evening. You know, when we first started picketing. Of course, as time drew on and they quit trying to work, uh, we'd pick it like two, three hours of the morning. But we still got up early in the morning and went. And we'd, it was winter time and it rained. And we'd be so wet that we couldn't hardly walk from standing out in the rain. We had nowhere to get in the dry. Sometimes we'd get up on the store porch when it poured, you know, when it rained too hard. And then we had snow and, and sunshine. I've had my face burn off with the sun when we first and started. And had frost. Frost, and we'd stand around these old, uh, had big barrels made for stoves, you know, when it got cold weather. And we'd stand around them, and we'd look like we'd been working in the mines when we got home. I mean, there's nothing down there to excite you. If anybody's looking for excitement, I wouldn't recognize, I wouldn't recommend the picket line, because there's no excitement there. It's just a whole lot of trouble. Do you think that men have more support now from the women than they did back in the 30s? Yes, they have. Uh, back then, they they didn't uh, they wouldn't let the women go out, and uh, the women would want uh, they'd march, and they really wanted to go, but they they wouldn't just wasn't allowed. They didn't couldn't, but they they have more support now for the women than they did then, and uh, the women's done awful awful good. They'd been working, and it'd been, if it hadn't been for the women, the Brookside had been a, working every day, and their store had been a running and everything, but uh, uh, the women, the women had it. They, they was cause of everything of shutting down, you know, keeping them out of there. And uh, for the time being, they have high splint. They don't want us to go yet. But if it comes necessary, and we have to, we'll, we'll be there. We've not quit picketing, although we've been over the line for a while, but we, we're ready to start again if they need us. Uh, when the men fails out up there, us women to go. We'll go when the men can't do no more. Well, like uh, the thing is, down at Brookside, now the women didn't just go down there and stand around all the time. Uh, uh, there was times that we had to use physical force, like one morning Mr. Yarbrough was coming in and he had one of his gun thugs with him. And I saw a lady whip that gun thug with a switch through the car window and him drawing his pistol ready to shoot her and she just gave him a good whipping. I mean, you can't go down there scared to death because them scabs don't care what they do. And there's plenty of times that, that we had to stop them by force because that was the only way you'd, you'd ask them not to work and beg them, and they'd just laugh at you and cuss you and go right on to work. I mean, we had to stop them physically because I don't know, Adam, if the ladies went with switches. And then we got so that we were afraid of the switches, and we, we got little poles about this big around that we took with us because we realized that the switches might not be enough against all those guns that they had down there. And, uh, but we finally showed them that they wasn't going to work, and they finally quit trying. Like I said, back in 
February was the last time they tried to work. And they went in all right, but there was only about eight of them. I think there was just enough up there to cause trouble or to see if we were going to pick it again, you know, or if we were just going to let them, if they'd wore us out and we was just going to let them go ahead and work. But when we heard they were in there, we were there waiting on them when they come out. And they didn't come back. Because I think they realize that they're just not going to work down there without a contract. I hope they realize it because they're not. And then, too, the company, I think, has trouble getting anybody that will come to work down there now because just about everybody has heard about it. You know, for a while, their first crew they got, they hadn't had no trouble or nothing, and so they, they felt fairly safe, you know, in going on and working. But I think now they'd have second thoughts about working. When did the women the miners and women of Brookside eventually won their demands, and the mine was unionized in 1974. Women are and have always been on the front lines of labor movements in central Appalachia, demanding better wages and safer working conditions, better health care and standards of living, not only for themselves but for their communities at large. At WMMT, we're grateful to the women who have and continue to lead movements for justice in our mountains and beyond. That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk. To hear it again, visit our website at www.wmmt.org or download it as a podcast from SoundCloud. Music on this episode comes from the Mountain Community TV recording of a strike song written by the Brookside women in 1973. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. You take a scab and you kill him and you put it in.